You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, we get the word uh, politics from the Greek word for city, polis. Just like the word for civility comes from the Latin word kivitas. And the struggle in the city, the political struggle, isn't for the right to run the city, but to live together in a way that reflects the love of the one who does. Let's pull out our Bibles. Our good news this afternoon comes from Mark chapter 13, 1 through 13. If you're pulling out the Pew Bible, it's that black book in the rack in front of you, please turn to page 825. I'd like to invite you to read this Scripture allowed together with me, Mark 13, verses 1 through 13. After we're done reading, I would encourage you to keep it open because I'm going to interact with you about this passage. If you're able, please stand with me. Let's read God's Word aloud as an act of worship. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading His Holy Word. As He came out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. As for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will be betrayed, brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Hold that open, and uh, as you're seated, you might just take a quick look at verse 31, because oftentimes I get asked, why do you say that stuff about heaven and earth passing away? I'm actually quoting that verse, verse 31. It's what Jesus himself says. Jesus tells his followers that they will be drawn into the political struggles of their day. You will stand before governors and kings because of me, he says Verse 9, but when we do, we will do so with the good news of Jesus. 
The topic comes up, this discussion of politics, as the disciples are leaving the temple. And they look, and they're passing through one of the great gates of the Jerusalem temple. And one of the disciples, who's nameless, looks at Jesus and, and says, Teacher, what great stones, what great buildings. It's a moment of appreciation and admiration, and he's right to do so because the temple, the, Her- the temple of Herod, is absolutely spectacular in the f- first century. It's a monument of human culture, architecture, and engineering. Now, some of you have been there, and you know you can actually walk across its foundation today. The buildings are gone, but the foundation is impressive. It rises 180 feet above the ground in some places. It's 35 acres. Uh, it's, uh, it could hold 12 football fields. And if you were to walk around the, the circumference, it'd be almost a mile-long walk. This is the largest temple in the ancient world. Some of the stones, they were truly great, larger than a bus, uh, weighed over a million pounds. And so these disciples are right to admire and say, what great buildings. And yet, this is not to them simply an architectural achievement, not in the first century. At this moment, these buildings mean something more to them. They are symbols of political power. That's why the Romans have seized them. That's why the Jews are trying to reclaim them. As a matter of fact, uh, all the little factions that swirl about in in Judea at that time are political parties. You you remember their names. If you've read the New Testament, Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, uh, the Essenes, these parties are all exist because people have different strategies, opinions about how we ought to reclaim the temple for God's purposes. So the divisions around Jesus are shaped by this symbol of political power. It's also a symbol of nationalistic identity. This was what they claimed as a, sort of the, the image of Judaism, the, the Jewish temple. So much so that, for example, in the 6th century BC, when the Babylonian armies come knocking at the gates of Jerusalem, people think the only defense strategy they need is simply to claim the temple. And we read in Jeremiah 4 that the people are saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as though it's some kind of a talisman that wards off all evil. This is the, this is the symbol of power that God has given us. It's very impressive to see something like that. An example of this for those of us who are Americans might be to go to Washington, D.C. I remember not long after I graduated as a university student, I I got in my VW bus and I drove down to uh, D.C. And I was so amazed by the architecture of that city, the boulevards, the mall, and all these buildings that look royal to me. I I, I was surprised to see them in America. I thought they'd fit in Europe, but they seem to speak of empire. And I was raised in a very political family. I'm, a, I'm quite a patriotic guy, actually. And when I was there, I was just, oh, I thought, wow, what buildings? It's so impressive. This right here is uh, the capital, the greatest democracy on the face of the planet. That's what I would say to myself. And yet notice Jesus here in this moment seems somewhat unimpressed. What does Jesus say in reply? Verse 2, he says, do you see these great buildings? Yes, they're great, he acknowledges. 
Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. This would have been staggering for the disciples to hear Jesus say this. Not one stone. In a single sentence, Jesus calls his disciples to a hope that is greater than partisan politics. A hope that is greater than buildings, a hope that is greater than political divisions, a hope that is greater than the nationalism itself that they celebrate at this time. He says, the good news must be preached or proclaimed to all the nations. By the way, that word nation doesn't refer to a geopolitical entity with a border around it. It's the word ethnos, from which we get our word ethnicity. All peoples around the world. The good news is for them. He's calling them outside of their parochial ideologies. Not one stone of this symbol will be left. He's calling them to a hope that's greater, longer lasting, and more all-encompassing. See, with a single sentence, Jesus, I think, brilliantly deconstructs his followers' political outlook. He's really tinkering now. He's starting to dismantle their settled biases and and partisan ideologies. He's trying to get them to see their city through a new lens. Not one stone will stand upon another here. Now, they, in the first century, and his followers are certain examples of this, had noble ideas. Many of them were political ideas. Yet the fact is that in less than a generation, this city will be destroyed by people with noble ideas. I saw an interview recently with Steven Pinker, the Harvard professor. He's got a roadshow around his new book called Enlightenment Now. And it sounds like a fascinating book. He's, he's tried to draw together evidence that shows the world has never been better than it is today, that globally hunger is down, poverty is down, violence is down. Uh, all kinds of things, even lightning strikes, apparently. The incidence of lightning strikes is down. He's got a theory for all of this. And if you ask Steven Pinker how this is possible, his answer in a phrase is secular humanism. That's why he calls the book Enlightenment now. Secular humanism is the idea that we can solve our own problems uh, by ourselves. Now, I, I don't know that Jesus would be so impressed with this philosophy. Uh, actually... Um, I'm not even sure how you could have the enlightenment if you didn't first have Jesus and his good news. I think the enlightenment is the result of Jesus. And in the same way, I think Jesus is a little bit more sober about the human identity, the human nature on this side of the fall. That ought to give us pause about secular humanism. I think that Jesus here in our text is laying the axe to every human ideology that is not rooted in him. Every one of our so-called isms is subject to his judgment. Secularism, humanism, Religionism, Marxism, capitalism, conservatism, liberalism, all of these things. Without God, I'd suggest that nothing can be more dangerous than a noble idea. Reinhold Niebuhr in the last century wrote, Religion, declares the modern man, is consciousness of our highest social values. But Niebuhr is not buying that. He continues and he says, Nothing could be further from the truth. 
True religion is profound uneasiness about our highest social values. See, if Jesus is whom Mark is portraying him to be in the gospel from the very first sentence, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Jesus is God coming to speak a transcendent truth into very particular cultures. And if the good news is, in fact, transcendent truth, then it ought to clash with all cultures at some point. It ought to call into question all humanistic ideologies, all of our isms. But I want to suggest to you this evening that there are few places where it is harder to be confronted by the good news than in our politics. Politically speaking, I think today we want the good news simply to mean we win, right? We're the good guys. Uh, uh, we're on the right side of history, we like to say. God is on our side. Sometimes our political agenda becomes our God. And Jesus says, not one stone of that will be left upon another. If he would deconstruct our political outlook, Jesus would do it because he's calling us into something bigger, something better, something longer lasting, and something holistic, something for all of the nations. I'm reminded of Joshua, who in chapter 5, we're told, is getting ready to embark not just on a military conquest, but on a political victory, because he's going to lead God's people into the promised land. And he has this vision, and an angel of the Lord appears before him, the commander of the Lord's army. He's a warrior. And Joshua asks the most important question, at least from our perspective, it's a question we always ask, and he's what he asks, are you one of us or are you one of them? And what does the angel of the Lord say? Neither. I'm here to call you to something much bigger than that. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples in this moment. I'm offering, Jesus says, I'm offering you a hope that's greater than your partisan politics. And I'd like to suggest to us tonight that if we don't have good news, then troubling news, whatever its source, will not only divide us, it will devastate us. That's what's happened in Jerusalem. Let me give you just a little bit of historical background here. Um, Tradition tells us that John Mark writes the Gospel of Mark in Rome. We think maybe about AD 64. Just think about where he is right now. Rome. Rome is the capital of partisan politics. Rome is the epicenter of the empire and the known world from a Roman perspective. This is where politics rises, not just to high art, but to brutal blood sport. I mean, politics in Rome makes our pundits on CNN and Fox News look like they're playing t-ball. This is the big leagues now in Rome. Just take a look at the last three emperors as John Mark writes this. Caligula, stabbed. Claudius, poisoned. Nero is about to strike the match that will burn the vast majority of the whole imperial capital to the ground, and he does it in the name of political ambition. So that's where he writes. But what he knows is that in six years, news is going to arrive of a very troubling nature that's going to rock the world of this struggling little house church, Christian network of house church communities. 
And he wants to prepare them so that they have a faith that's strong enough to stand on in the face of troubling news. What's going to happen? Well, just two years later, in AD 66, this internecine political flight, fighting that I talked about in, among the Jews, these parties, is going to flare up into open and armed conflict. The Jewish revolt will begin up north in the area of Galilee and will come down. They will fight for four years until the Roman Empire in force just squat, brutally suppresses this uprising. Finally, you know the story of Masada. Well, they will eventually uh, march the Romans up into Rome and they will destroy the Jerusalem temple. What Jesus is talking about here isn't just metaphorical. It's literal and it's historic. Not one stone of that temple is left today on that foundation because of what the Romans did in A.D. 70. And Mark wants his readers to be prepared for that. Scholars tell us that by 70, actually all of the things, except for the return of our Savior, has already happened. The things that are predicted by Jesus here in the whole chapter, Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse. There have been, there will have been wars, earthquakes, famines, betrayal, persecutions, trials, and martyrdom. And so he describes a world that's divided, conflict, brother will betray brother, children will rise up against parents. It's all happened. And yet I can't escape the fact that today, when I look at how we interact with one another, this is strikingly and hauntingly relevant. Because I think what was happening in Jerusalem is happening today. You and I live in a very politically engaged city, and I'm grateful for that. But I got to tell you, in my neighborhood, where my wife and I are trying to establish bonds of family with our neighbors, we have had to literally set up a political mash unit this year. My neighbors have been so traumatized by the political news that it's like we're, we're setting up this little ICU to help them, the space in which they can be called to something greater and something bigger. It's wonderful that we can do that, and it's been so appreciated by them. Why has our political discourse now become so uncivil? And I think the reason is this. It's because our politics have become our identities. There's a professor in the UC system named Alex Theodoridis who, who writes that our politics have increasingly, quote, become part of our self-concept in deep and meaningful ways. What he's saying is our politics is, is no longer just kind of a picture or an understanding of our city and what would make it flourish. Now our politics more a reflection of ourselves. It's, it's more of an expression of how we see who we think we are. And when we do that, very unintentional but dangerous outcomes obtain. Because if your politics is your identity, what happens when your party wins? Pride. What happens when your party loses? Well, you're wiped out. You're devastated. And so we can't afford that. And so we tend to retreat into tribal camps. And uh, this professor describes how this in and out, us and them mentality is flaring up today. The political science actually measure this and show that increasingly we tend to attribute to people who are other tribes um, worse and worse attributes. So we are being divided and we are experiencing devastation. 
when we don't have something that's greater than our partisan politics. Because if we don't have a hope that's greater, as the temple goes, so we go. When our symbols become our identity and they're destroyed, then we are destroyed. Jesus offers us a greater hope. It's the hope that's not based on advice, as I've been saying, political advice, do's and don'ts, thou shalt, thou shalt not. It's, it's a hope that's based on news, good news, not what, we do, what we've done or didn't do, but on the basis of what God has done in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, that God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ. I mean, man, that gives us a new identity. Now we stand on grace because we're loved. That's abiding. That's sustainable. comes from the good news. God has reconciled the world of himself with Jesus Christ, called us not only to a new identity, but to a new a way of relating to one another based on reconciliation. When, this gives us a whole new foundation for political engagement. If our foundation is, as I find so many of my neighbors, anxiety and fear, of course our political lives will be troubled. But if we have a foundation that's founded on the good news of Jesus Christ, then we, we look to the future with real anticipation. I can't wait to see this reconciliation coming into full bloom the way we've been promised it's coming because of what God has done in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you might ask, George, do those who have this greater hope that you're talking about do they detach from the public square? If they have this greater hope, do they have less reason to engage in political life? And I want to suggest to you, Jesus' answer is just the opposite. He says unequivocally, no. What we discover here is that we will not just be drawn into the political struggles of our day, but we will be called into them. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake, Jesus tells us. He gives us a hope that's greater, and it's that hope that allows us to engage better. And let me tell you this. The temple was not meant to be a symbol of nationalistic identity, not ever. What it was meant to be originally was a sign of God's presence in the heart of the city. God is in the midst of his people. He's here. And God is doing a work that not only confronts and challenges the biases of society, but heals and renews the people themselves. A new social order is coming. Jesus calls it the kingdom of God, and we're called to participate in it. So those who can acknowledge and begin to recognize God's presence in the heart of the city become better participants, more eager participants in the political process. We have a better foundation in the good news, and this allows us to change the conversation. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. If you, if, if you're the foundation of your political life is the good news, then you're listening for good news in every conversation because you know it's the ultimate reality. And so let's imagine that you're in a, a political conversation. Let's imagine that you're with two friends and they're disagreeing with one another, say over gun control. 
oh no, are we going to go there? So yeah, so one person says, absolutely, no, you know, yes, we need gun control. Another person says, no way, no gun control. So you're a gospel person and you're listening for good news and you listen to both of them long and well. And at the end of it, what you can say to one person is, the person who says yes to gun control, you know what, Here, I think I hear a value coming from you be, below your partisan position, there's a value, and I want to affirm it. You really value safety. You think that everybody has a right to live their lives in peace. And you could say, that's right. And you know it's right because it's part of the good news. And you can look at the other person, the person who says no uh, uh, to gun control. And you say, I'm hearing beneath your position another more foundational value, and this value is Freedom. What I hear is, is you saying every person has a right and the responsibility to make good choices and you value freedom and that's right. See what you're saying is these are gospel values. These are in the foundation beneath the conversation. Take another example, uh, a, a, a cake that's being made for a same-sex couple. To the one who says yes, you could say, you know what? Beneath that position, I hear this value that you really value people. You just think every single person is of infinite value and has, uh, should have equal standing before the law and in society. And that's a good value. And to the person who says, no, you could say, you know, I hear another value in what you're saying. You value religious practice. You think everybody, who has a belief, no matter what that belief is, ought to have the freedom to express that belief in their life. And what you're saying, again, is these are good things. And as you call them out, you have the opportunity to affirm people and to build relationship and create this sense that we're not really opponents. We're actually on the same team. And that really matters. That would change the conversation, would it not? You can do this and should with immigration, trade, education, abortion, fill in the blank. You can see the good news in what your opponent is saying. You can build bridges and become part of the solution, not the problem. But there's more here that I think is also practical, and that's that those of us who make the good news the foundation of our lives recognize that Jesus is ruling in our midst that he's here and present. And this is what Jesus discusses when he gets into this about the Holy Spirit. And as a preacher, I love what he says about this. Don't worry about what you're going to say. It'll be given to you at the time, for it's not you who speak, it's the Holy Spirit. I hope you take that in the broadest possible sense. This is a wonderful promise. You may say, George, this bridge building and kind of, you know, this kind of reflective listening that surfaces these values... Is that going to really solve the complex political problems that we face? And I would say no. But I would also say, you know what? That's not your job. And Jesus is pointing to another agent in the conversation that really is the one who brings salvation. It's the language Jesus used. Salvation is the language of healing. The Holy Spirit, in every conversation, if you'll allow, he is at work in and through what you're saying. Don't worry about what you're going to say because it's not you who's speaking, Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. He takes the authority of Jesus from the throne of Christ and brings it down here, presence of God, right here in our city. You are the temple. And Jesus elsewhere teaches us that 
Every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. And what he will do in your life is he'll lead you to all truth. Jesus tells you he's your advocate. He gives a defense on your behalf. He comforts you. He counsels you. He heals you. He's at work. But not just in you who are the church. He's also at work in the world. And Jesus teaches this to us also elsewhere. That Jesus, he says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world. And, and the Holy Spirit will soften the hearts of people. And, and the Holy Spirit will open people's eyes to the good news of the gospel. So see this heavenly agent is at work on both sides of the transaction. We want to pay attention to that. Don't worry, he says. Well, what I'm trying to suggest to us tonight on the basis of this passage is that as we get to know Jesus, we come to know hope, a hope that's greater than our partisan politics. So let me leave you with a few questions and then a final story. Just some reflection questions that I've been asking myself about this. How can we let the good news of Jesus challenge our settled biases, as we must all do? How can we lean into the confidence of the Holy Spirit that brings grace into places of division and hostility? How can we live together in communities? And here I'm thinking about our small groups. How can we live together in communities that will show our neighbors today the peace and wholeness that's coming for all of creation tomorrow? And then finally, in the troubled news of today, how can we get to know the one who leads us through it? I want to close tonight with a story um, from Berkeley, actually. You know, Pastor Earl uh, was there as the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church Berkeley for 21 years, and he was succeeded, succeeded by a man named Mark Laberton, who actually came from UPC, is now the president of Fuller Seminary. Mark Laberton uh, writes about a moment that struck him uh, at Berkeley. Uh, several years ago, they had a, a week of angry political demonstrations, as they love to have at Berkeley. And uh, this was over the so-called Islamic uh, fascism. And there were protests and then counter-protests. And by the end of the week, everybody was absolutely exhausted. And there was just sort of one sound lingered. And it was the sound of good news. And here's how the editor of the student newspaper summed it up. He writes this. I can conclude only by ceding the floor to my friend Tinley Ireland, who gave, for my money at least, the best speech of the evening. Just as the sun set, shining right into her face, she stood up on the steps of Sproul Hall, on the same consecrated spot where earlier in the day the fear-based community had shouted itself hoarse about people, quote, over there who are just waiting, waiting to get us. But she stood there and told us about her faith. She talked about how the hardest part of following Christ was to love not just her friend, but her enemies. At the end, she asked who in the crowd didn't, did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Most hands went up, mine did. She smiled, and as the light faded, she simply and truly said, I love you. Now, I've been on the receiving end of a few punches in my life, but nothing ever hit me that hard. I don't know exactly what kind of politics or religion or philosophy that is, but whatever it is, where can I sign up? Let's pray. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, release us from the fear and anxiety that drives so much of our life, we pray. It would only be by a miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit that this would be possible in my life. And yet we pray that you would break us open to the joy that is ours and the good news of the gospel. We pray that you would change the tone and the substance of our conversation because we know you and we're coming to know you more and you're leading us through the city. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.